Mixed-race people aren't created in a vacuum. They're the product of two people from different backgrounds who came together to create something new. But what about the families that produce these people? What do they look like? And what specific conflicts do they face? This is Other, Mixed Race in America. I'm your host, Alex Laughlin. Today, we have the story of a woman whose life was nearly destroyed by these cultural cross-currents. But first, I have a conversation with Amy Choi, one of the creators of The Mashup Americans, a website and podcast about navigating hyphenated life in America. I talked to Amy about what it means to be a mashup and what happens to culture as it passes down through generations in the hands of these mashup Americans. I am first generation Korean American. I'm the first person in my family to be born in the U.S. I'm married to a first generation Colombian Mexican American. I have mixed race kids. And, you know, no single identity had ever really felt like wholly mine. So you use that word mashup. That's kind of the trademark of the entire project. Can you define what a mashup is? We really see mashups as the new definition of modern Americans. They are rooted in one culture and also forging a new future in another. So in America, that may be any kind of non-mainstream American in a way, but we see mashups as really leading from the margins. We see people who are code switching, people who are navigating different identities with total fluidity and who are able to kind of culturally ideologically flow from one space to another really beautifully. So we would say, you know, in knowing you, Alex, that, you know, you live in a multicultural city, you are mixed race yourself, your friends probably run the gamut from immigrants to people who've been here multiple generations to on the weekends, you guys are going out to like Ethiopian restaurants and the people at the table next to you are of every different race, religion, identity, sexual identity, and that experience is what we consider to be the mashup experience. I don't know about your family, but I know my family, and I know that a lot of Korean people tend to be kind of wary of people of other races, especially if they're not white. Mm, You can say it. Racist. So how did your family react when you married someone who wasn't Korean? You know, mm, they were actually... Very cool. And I say that not because my parents are particularly cool or open-minded about anything. My sister is married to a second-generation Italian guy who, all extents and purposes, white dude from Pittsburgh. So she's older than me. That had already happened. That ship had sailed. And what about his family side? His parents were incredibly open they were they were very accepting. And this is not unique, I think, to my relationship. I think the challenging thing about any mixed relationship or any mixed marriage, particularly when you get past, like, the actual connection, is that you don't know, like, you don't know what's racist until you know, right? Like, you don't know what you don't know. So my in-laws were incredibly loving and incredibly generous to me, but they didn't know that some of their attitudes were prejudicial or that some of the things that they said about how great Asians were at something were actually a little bit racist or hurtful to me. Yeah. Like, what do you do when you're at a family dinner and you've just met your significant other's parents for the first time and they say something to you like that? Like, 
What are you supposed to do? I mean, I think in the, those scenarios, when especially when it can be so hurtful, like self-preservation is the most important thing you can do. And then after that, you know, it's kind of up to you how much you want to interact with that person, how much you value that interaction, how much your partner, who has the primary relationship with whoever that asshole is, values that relationship and prioritizes it, possibly above yours. So how many kids do you have? I have two. Alejandro is three and a half and Serafina is one. They're the best. You had a really cute name for what your kids are. I've heard you say it on the podcast. It's like a lot of words mixed together. <laughs> um, Korean, Colombian, Mexican, American. I think it's the Carambexicans, also known as the future of America, I like to say. A couple future presidents right there. Do they speak Korean or Spanish? Well, the one-year-old doesn't really speak yet. But the three-and-a-half-year-old, he speaks pretty fluent Spanish. He's uh, pretty much bilingual. And then he basically has words in Korean. My in-laws speak to him in Spanish. My husband and I, when he was younger, spoke to him, and we had more, like, mental capacity before we had the second one. We spoke to him mostly in Spanish, a mix of Spanish and English in the house. And then his nanny speaks to him exclusively in Spanish. So, you know, my Korean... And this is something that's always been, you know, something I felt guilty about that I struggle with is that my Spanish is 1,000 times better than my Korean. So I grew up in a house where my parents spoke to me in Korean. I responded in English, which is essentially, you know, the relationship that I have with my parents today. So I really know Korean words and, you know, the kind of words that my kid knows in Korean are things like, or banku, like little words that I like. Like he says chokodox instead of chopsticks. But he's not going to get language from me. So we're kind of like a 2.5 language house. Is there a part of you that worries that your kid is just not going to be Korean? I'm nodding vigorously. That's definitely something that I concern myself with a lot. There's a part that, yeah, really is very scared about the sense that, like, if they no longer look Asian, then will they be Korean? You know, if they no longer speak Korean language or if they don't love kimchi, are they going to be Korean? If they don't feel some sort of tie to Korea or have relatives that speak to them in Korean, are they ever going to be Korean? And the answer to me is yes, because they will be able to take whatever Korean is and make it into their own. You know, something that kind of, like, softens that mourning a little bit is that Maybe they may be less Korean, but what are they making that they are? Like, that loss doesn't come just as a loss. It also comes as an act of creation for whatever they choose to be or whatever they want to be. But the other thing was that, like, a fear that they were going to be less mine, period. I spoke Spanish. My husband spoke Spanish. My husband's family speaks Spanish. Our childcare speaks Spanish. Our kids speak Spanish. They don't speak any Korean. And what did that mean? What, like, what was I actually afraid of with that happening? Would it mean that my kids were less mine because they were more Latin than not? And I think ultimately it was like, no. But, you know, that it, it was kind of a letting go process that was part of parenting for me was like letting go of the idea that I governed their identity or that I, by virtue of like who I am and the culture that I grew up with, was going to completely inform theirs. Which I think is pretty universal to any parenting experience. I say as a person who has zero children, but like at one point you have to let go of these expectations and beliefs that your kids are an extension of yourself. 
1,000%. You sound like my therapist. Yeah. No, and I think that that, that idea, it, you're absolutely right. It's the parenting universal. It's a family universal. But that, that rings, I think, especially true for people who are struggling with what do I pass on to my kids? And that feels very important when you feel like your own identity is somehow under threat. Or if you feel like you're being you know, subsumed by a culture that doesn't quite feel like yours, then what does it mean if yours is getting lost and you can't give that to your kids? You know, I think coming to terms with that or regaining the sense that we're all making a new culture at the same time is very healing and also very powerful when you think that about your kids. It's like, oh, okay. You know, just because your kids aren't carbon copies of you doesn't mean that they're any less yours. So next up is a story about a woman who is torn between two worlds. She went on a journey to find out which one was hers. What she ended up finding, though, was the common tie that we all have as humans. The thing that stays when everything else falls away. When you're able to see the person and not the politics of their identity. Sulaimé Anderson is an Arab-American journalist who grew up in between the U.S. and Lebanon. Lebanese have this way of like making pilgrimages, you know, diaspora Lebanese. They have to bring the family back to Lebanon and tell them why Lebanon is the best country in the world. And, you know, take them to Jaita and take them to the Baalbek and, you know, all these places and, you know, make sure they understand their heritage. So I've, I've been doing this since I was, you know, a very small child. Yeah. Suleme grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family situation. So I start from the beginning. Um, my mother got pregnant with me while my father was still married. You know, it was kind of like a surprise pregnancy. They didn't, my mom didn't think she could have a kid. And they had only been dating for a short while. And he was married. Um, so it was like kind of a scandal. She spent most of her childhood with just her mother in the U.S. And occasionally her mother's family, who she would visit in Lebanon. I mean, for me, it was always a place of like warmth and comfort. And, and Lebanon is, is can be a really spectacular place, uh, especially as a child. You know, there's so much different variety of, of landscapes and activities and things. And, um, and you know, there's the exotic that, you know, it, it wasn't quite exotic, but it wasn't quite comfortable. And, I mean, my association with it all through my childhood was very positive. It wasn't until I became older that I understood the role it had played in how damaged my life became. Here's the thing. Suleme's father was an American, but not just any American. He was Terry Anderson, an Associated Press reporter who until recently was the longest held captive in American history. On March 16, 1985, Anderson was kidnapped by Hezbollah Shiite militants. Suleme's mother was Madeline Basile, a Lebanese journalist who met him while she was working for NBC. Basile was pregnant with Suleme when Anderson was kidnapped. During lulls in the war, my mother would bring me back to visit my family. And I just, I remember her always telling me, because I had blonde hair, and she would always say, don't, don't speak in English, just speak in Arabic, because she was afraid. And she said, then never tell anyone who your father is. Her father was held captive for six years and nine months. He was finally released in 1991, when Suleme was six years old. When the new spotlight finally dimmed, the Andersons began the hard work of becoming a family. Terry dealt with PTSD, and Suleme, a small child, didn't know what to make of this surly, moody man who was meant to be her father. Family moved around the country for a few years before settling in Athens, Ohio. And then, you know, after 
9-11 happened when I was like, a, I think a junior in high school. And after that, being Arab was, you know, nobody wanted to talk about being Arab. And, and I was, because I don't look Arab, I was exposed to a lot of nastiness and um, bigotry and racism that I was just, I would just hear because they didn't think I was Arab. So they would say things like, you know, sand N-word, towel heads, um, just whatever racial slurs, camel jockeys, like all sorts of things. And I would get really upset and be like, no, I'm, I'm part Arab. Like, you can't say that around me. And he'd be like, yeah, but you're not really. It wasn't just derogatory statements about Arabs that Suleyme was hearing. And especially after 9-11, she started hearing more and more discrimination toward Muslims, too. My mother's father was Christian. My mother's mother was Muslim. But my Christian aunts married Muslim men. So all, all of my cousins are Muslim. And, you know, a lot of them moved here right now. So I have a lot of Muslim family in the States at the moment. And it was all a part of our family. And I feel very lucky about that. But at the same time, people are always like, well, why do you care so much? You're not Muslim. And I'm like, well, no, but people I care about are Muslim. And it's hard for people to understand. You know, you don't wear hijab. Your mother is Christian. Like, why do you care? I couldn't not care. Soulmay lived like this for years, getting into fights, getting kicked out of schools, and doing drugs. She moved to New York after graduating high school. And then I realized that this is a place where everybody goes who doesn't fit in. At that point in my life, I was really not in a good place. I was on a lot of drugs and um, struggling with a lot of psychological issues, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just kind of drifting. But I felt like I had an anchor, like, throughout the whole thing. The one thing sort of anchoring me to any sort of purpose was the news. For the first time in her life, she considered what people always told her to do. Journalism. She'd been searching for the thing that would make her, her. But it turned out it was what people could see in her all along. And it came from her parents. Both of them. She never had to choose a side. And in a lot of ways, it's what saved her. One day, I mean, I, I'll never forget it. I woke up one day and I was like, well, I guess this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. After graduating from Columbia, she moved to Lebanon to start work. Looking back, I am absolutely sure that I did it on some level because I wanted to excel at a profession my father excelled at in the place that he excelled at. At first, she didn't tell anyone who her father was. Her story wasn't the one she wanted to dwell on. I think the best part of it for me is, is talking to people. I'm the kind of person who talks to anybody who crosses my path, um, and I want to know all about their lives and what common ground I hold with this person who maybe on the outside looks nothing like me and would seem to have nothing in common with me. But when I get in a conversation with them, there are things that we can share. Suleme began covering what she knew, terrorism. And then who she was started to matter. I have a fixer who has introduced me to a lot of Hezbollah people. And as I spent more time around them, they became more comfortable with me. They would say things to me like, oh, your father was kept in that building right there. And, um, you know, other people would say things like, yeah, my neighbor had some of the hostages in her basement. Or, um, you know, somebody would say, oh, we know where one of your father's captors is. He lives in that building right there. And I'd say, you know, well, they talk to me. And these inevitably, they'd, these people would be like, no, there's not a chance I'll talk to you. It would be the ultimate story for her to tell if she could just get them in the same room and talking. And then it happened completely by chance. She'd been interviewing a Hezbollah man for another story, and without Suleme knowing, he found out that she was Terry Anderson's daughter. He kept that to himself at first. Before long, she found out that he was actually the man who had guarded her father while he was in captivity. We had spent a great deal of time together, and we pretty much got along. I mean, you know, we weren't like the best of friends, but as a source and a journalist, we got along. 
I thought he was a nice man. You know, he's Hezbollah, so he's not, you know, super accessible. But um, he seemed to have some sort of code or honor. Sulme wrote that when she asked him about her father, he said, quote, If Terry Anderson comes to me today, to my house, I will embrace him and say I'm sorry for what happened to him. But I don't regret what I did. I did it to help my people. I had a really hard time when I found out what had happened and that he had been the person who had guarded my father. I had a really, really hard time making that fit with my idea of who he was just from spending time with him. And here's where Sulame did the unimaginable. She challenged herself to see the human being inside this man, who in some ways is responsible for so much of the pain and turmoil in her life. Sulame wrote a book about her experiences called The Hostage's Daughter. It was published in late 2016. The week before her book published, Sulame married her husband, Jeremy, at a family friend's house in the New Jersey Palisades, just outside of New York City. The guests ate baba ganoush and hummus on pita as the New Orleans brass band played pop songs. Everyone cried as she danced with her dad at the reception. But when it came time for Jeremy to dance, it was Sulame's mother he held. That's because Jeremy's mother wasn't at the wedding. None of his family was. Here's why. Jeremy grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. He married at 20 and had a son. And in 2013, he left it all. I think a year and a half before we met, he had decided to leave his wife and, um, and the community and just start completely from you know square one because he, he was never meant to be a part of that life. Because most people go through life just listening to what everyone tells them and accepting it as reality. You know, there are certain people, and they're rare, but there are certain people who refuse to accept what the people around them tell them. And he was one of those people. And he, he just, you know, the more he learned, the more he found out about himself, he, he, he knew that what the people around him were telling him did not jive with his idea of himself and what the world should be. So he left. Sulme has never met her in-laws because they refused to meet her. I mean, they don't hate me because they don't know me. They can't possibly hate me. But they hate the idea of me. And, I mean, in many ways, I am everything that they would hate. I'm not only am I not Jewish, I'm also Arab. I'm also, like, pretty political and open about my criticism of the Israeli government. And um, it makes sense that they would dislike me. But at the same time, I, I just want to be like, listen, just put me in a room with them. You know, like, let me sit down and, and talk to them. And I'm sure we could find something to, to relate to each other with. Sulme managed to get in a room with the man who kidnapped her father. She sat face to face with the man responsible for so much of the pain in her life. And she saw his humanity. The one bridge she hasn't been able to build yet is right here at home. Thanks for listening to Other, Mixed Race in America. This podcast was written and produced by me, Alex Laughlin, with editing from Terrence Samuel. You can subscribe to Other, Mixed Race in America on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to Other, Mixed Race in America, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. And if you want to support great storytelling, please subscribe to The Washington Post. We're giving our listeners $100 off for a one-year all-access digital subscription. Just go to wapo.st slash other100. Again, that's wapo.st slash other100. 
Thank you to JJ Posway for writing our theme music and to Chris Kindred for designing our logo. Other Mixed Race in America is a podcast from the Washington Post. See all our podcasts at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.